Welcome to Spawn, a common sense and hopefully fun discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. Kristen Chase is out this week. Together, we're the co-founders of CoolMomFix.com. And today, I'm going to be talking to Ada Calhoun, author and journalist, about her new book and bestseller, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. And if any of you have seen my question in the Spawn Facebook community recently, you'll know this is a topic very personal to me and I think to a lot of my fellow Gen X sisters, but I think whatever age you are, you will get a lot out of this. And of course, we'll close our show with our cool picks of the week. I'm excited to jump right in with Ada and she'll be joining me right after this. Today's episode of Spawned is brought to you by Briar's Ice Cream, America's number one ice cream brand, and their line of treats for those of you eating healthier these days, Briar's Carb Smart. These sweet frozen treats have just three to five grams net carbs per serving, all under 150 calories. And they are good. You can find them in tubs if you like to keep things simple or in bars with flavors like peanut butter, caramel swirl, chocolate-covered almond, and more. Plus, their partnership with America's Farmers means all Carb Smart treats are made with 100% grade-A milk and cream. And here's a special offer just for Spawn listeners, and you won't find this anywhere else. Visit briars.com slash spawned, and you can download a coupon. It's a decent size one, I will tell you that much. And that way you can try Briar's Carb Smart for yourself. You can find it at Target, Kroger, Amazon Pantry, basically all major retailers. Again, that's briars.com slash spawned for a downloadable coupon so you can give Briar's Carb Smart treats a try today. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Ada Calhoun is a prolific author, an award-winning journalist and reporter, and an A-list ghostwriter who's collaborated on 14 nonfiction books from major publishers, including several New York Times bestsellers that we may never even know about because she's a ghostwriter. She's also authored a humorous memoir, Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give, and the New York City history book, St. Mark's is Dead, The Many Lives of America's Hippest Street. Basically, she has a ton of interests, which is why she's my kind of writer. She's also contributed essays to various projects, including the Beastie Boys book. Her essay there on Gen X womanhood was called one of the more effective guest star turns by The Ringer. And you may have even seen her work in The New Yorker, Time, National Geographic, Traveler, O, The Oprah Magazine, The New Republic, Billboard, Cosmo, Red Book, and several modern love columns and lives columns in The New York Times, which are my favorites. And though moms like me may best know her as the former editor-in-chief of the online magazine Babbel.com, which is how we first met years and years ago. Ada has taught reporting and writing at colleges and workshops, and she's the co-founder of the Journalist Society and reading series Sob Sisters and an advocate for public libraries, yay libraries. But what we're going to talk about is most recently, she's the author of the New York Times bestseller and generation-defining Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis, which is an expansion of her viral story for Oprah.com, The New Midlife Crisis, Why and How It's Hitting Gen X Women. I am so excited to talk to her about this right now, and welcome, Ada. Thank you, Liz. That was an amazing introduction. I feel like, you know, you 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 said it all and more. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Well, you have written it all and more, and I just want to say, I can't wait to read the St. Mark's book after this. Like that's oh, That I'll was like my childhood right there was growing up on that street and watching it transition from like underground tattoo parlors to, you know, gaps and Starbucks. Yeah. So I, I grew up on St. Mark's Place between first and second. My parents moved there in 1973. Wow. Yeah. Well, then I walked past you many times. My dad lived <laughs> further uptown, but that was my 
my like second home away from home. Yeah, oh, yeah I'll definitely send it. We'll too. have to have a whole other discussion about that. But first of all, <laughs> as we're asking all our guests these upside down times, how are you for real? Like, how are you doing these days? Uh, you know, a, a little delirious. I don't. I never know what day it is um, or what hour. Like, I'm I'm often blindsided by the fact that it's like time to make dinner. So, I mean, I don't know on a scale from one to ten, like a. I feel lucky, you know, um, in a lot of ways, but it's definitely very strange. I, I feel like on a sliding scale, six is actually quite solid these days. <laughs> yeah. If you asked me yesterday, I would have probably said four, but. Um, yeah. Okay. So hovering, hovering in the four to six range. You're normal up and down. So let's talk about the book. Let's jump right in. I am a Gen Xer. And first of all, to our listeners, this book is so freaking good. Like the second you get to a say anything quote, you know you're going to love this book. <laughs> In fact, I just rewatched that with my kids last week and it holds oh. up very well. Oh, good. I should watch it with my kids. I haven't seen it in years, but I still have it memorized. It really holds up very well. It's very good. So the opening paragraph on the flap, I'm just going to start with the flap. It says this, when Ada Calhoun found herself in the throes of a midlife crisis, she thought she had no right to complain. She was married with children and a good career. So why did she feel so miserable? And why did it seem other Gen X women were miserable too? And that's how we start. So what did you find? <laughs> why were you so miserable? Yeah. So I, like, like many women, I think felt bad and thought I was doing something wrong. And I did all the like, I planked and I tried different foods and exercises and, you know, self-help programs and cleaned up my closets and like was doing all those things. And I was like, nothing is helping. There's something deeper. And so when I did this article for Oprah.com, I saw these patterns like of just profoundly bad luck that our generation has had just economically and socially. And, and I thought, you know, we actually were told at the same time that we were dealing with all these problems that we should reach for the stars, that, you know, you can be anything, even president, little girls, and, you know, this is your world is your oyster. But it wasn't true. And I think the result that I found was that a lot of women this age have not done all the things that they had hoped to do by any stretch, and they, they think it's something that they did wrong. And the argument of the book is, you know, maybe, but also maybe the dice were loaded. I'm glad you brought that up because we have had any number of episodes on Spawned with experts and authors about the whole myth of having it all. And we talk a lot about, you know, ways to handle it and what you can have and how to divide your life and things like that. But you know, what we haven't really talked about is what being raised to have it all or to think that we can have it all has done to us psychologically and emotionally. So can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So it's funny. I have a, a good friend who is a boomer and she was saying like when she achieved all the things she did and she was very successful, she became like editor in chief of magazines and she had a family and all these things. Everyone was amazed. They were just like, wow, look at you go. You're amazing. Um, and then, you know, she looks at younger women. So women, her daughter's age and my age, you know, they've done at least as much as I have and they feel like it's never enough. They feel like, and no one is cheering them on. They're just like, oh, you know, well, have you gone to the gym? You know, how, how's your house looking? Um, are your kids in after school programs? Like they're, the, the standards have gotten so, so high. Mm. And I think those are internalized, but they also are cultural. And meanwhile, women of our generation, many of them, uh, you know, delayed having families and so find themselves in their 40s working full-time jobs with a necessary income while doing still most of the housework and most of the childcare while going through perimenopause 
and having the pressures of social media and the phones pinging all day long, um, it's, it's just untenable. And yet I think we haven't really questioned that much and said, what are we doing to ourselves? Yeah. And the other thing I like is that you kind of go back in history and talk about how we grew up, like say anything. And so I don't want to get totally millennial versus Gen X here, but I hear a lot from millennials, like no one's ever had it worse than we have. No one ever will. Look at all the things we're dealing with. But like you bring up a lot of good points about what's specific to Gen X that have made things tough for us. Yeah. Well, and you know, I don't want to get in a competition. And I think it's that is one thing that when you start talking about generations, I feel like both the millennials and boomers have um, issues, right? Like plenty of them. We all have issues. And they want to talk about them. We all had issues. And I, yeah, I guess that's the argument is like Gen X often gets overlooked. So the people who are middle-aged now, and maybe I should define it, which is born probably between 1965, 1980, although mm-hmm. there are different definitions. And I think elder millennials and younger boomers are still um, middle-aged right now. Mm-hmm. So it's anyway, it's not a competition, right? Everyone had different things. But what I'm arguing is like if our mothers and grandmothers were working, it was probably nine to five. If they had kids, they were probably out of the house by the time they were in their 40s. So middle age is just different now than it was. And how about like what our childhoods were like that may have impacted this? You know, one thing you wrote about that brought up so many triggering memories was like the day after. I talk about this on Twitter all the time, that we grew up absolutely sure that we were going to die in Ronald Reagan's nuclear war, the end, and live like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> and and I even see now, like, the um, recent uh, 2020 graduation that they had televised, they used the song Forever Young by Alphaville, which is, you know, one of the times I started sobbing. That was my graduation song. Not not officially, but, like, oh. that, was, that came out my senior year. And I think people yeah. don't realize that was a song about, like, we're all going to die. The bomb's going to drop. So maybe we'll be forever young. It's like a really dark song. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, I didn't, I... yeah. I mean, one of the first lines is, are you going to drop the bomb or not? Oh. And, that, and that doesn't mean, like, a big question. <laughs> It's like literally the bomb. Yeah. And they say, let us die young or let us live forever. I mean, it's really it's really intense if you look at the lyrics. And so as much as we loved it, it really hit the kind of pathos we were all feeling back then and the stress and the terror. And I'm just wondering what you found in terms of other aspects of our childhood that led to this crisis now or midlife crisis. Well, you're, you're blowing my mind because that song is in fairly heavy rotation on my Apple Music and I had never really paid attention to the lyrics and that makes a lot of sense now. So yeah, our childhoods, I think, are romanticized now often because kids have so many rules attached to their behavior that that freedom that we had is romanticized and thought of as like, oh yeah, we got to just leave in the morning and bike around and then come back home <laughs> right. at dinner time. But it was the highest crime rate. It was the highest murder rate. They started putting the missing little kids on the milk cartons we looked at every day at school. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was, like you said, this sense that the world could end at any minute. Almost all our movies were about the end of the world. Uh, And there was just this static of danger, this this, kind of looming um, fear. Abuse was at a very high rate. Um, You know, and I think especially girls, I don't know one woman who doesn't have horror stories about being a girl growing up in the 70s or 80s. It was just a very dark time to be a child. I think that's a really good point. And, and, you know, we don't talk about that a lot. You're right. And that's why I like that you cover that in, in the book. One thing you did with the book that I really like is that you focused on the middle class because, as you put it, very poor women have different kinds of struggles and rich women already have reality shows. <laughs> that was hilarious. And so I like that you looked at 
you know, basically middle, upper middle class women all united by age. But you were really diverse in terms of who you reached out to with um, different races, with and without children, people with different relationship statuses, income, sexuality all over the country. And I'm wondering, what do they all have in common and what's different? Yeah, so that was really important to me because I'd noticed that a lot of the books about women in general and especially middle-aged women were geared toward one community or another. Like it was just for black women or just for white women, just for women in Brooklyn. Like it was, it felt very regional Mm -hmm. um, and, and very kind of cloistered. And I feel like there are so many things that unite us in this age range. What I found was that we had in common this sense of personal judgment. Like I heard from so many different women around the country what did I do wrong? Like they would say that. Mm. And it would it would be because they hadn't, say, gone as far in their career as they thought or because they thought they were going to have a family and they didn't. And they would say like, what did I do wrong? And, and so I thought that was so interesting to hear from, you know, women of different races, of different politics. I talked to, you know, Democrats and Republicans. I talked to women in the South and women in Alaska. And, you know, um, that they all had this same kind of language around them. And then I tried to just mostly in the book focus on what united us and not to go off on too many tangents for like specific groups. But I would say that it's been kind of embraced in a lot of different communities who've then used the book to like talk about those things we have in common and then to add other things. So like, you know, groups of black women who used to talk about the book, talk about like, yes, it's all this. Plus it's dealing with systemic racism, Um, you know, or, or women who are very liberal talk about like, yes, it's all this. But the fact that we just lost this election. Um, and so I think maybe it's like, this is just this the shared stuff. And then there are a lot of other things you could add on. I think that's fair. And actually, I think that addresses kind of what one of the questions might be about the title of the book, which is that the idea of just complaining is a privilege in itself. Well, like you were saying, it doesn't have to be like the complaining Olympics, like I have it worse than you do. I mean, I think that struggles are relative. Everyone's allowed to have their feelings and they're real. But do you think there is any kind of inherent privilege in feeling dissatisfied with life? Uh, Well, you know, what's funny about that is I feel like there have been so many books about middle-aged men and so many movies. Um, Like think about all the 80s movies with Michael Douglas in them Um, (laughs) and about how how hard it is, right, to be a middle-aged man. And just one story after the other where we're supposed to feel so much compassion for Kevin Spacey because he, you know, wants to sleep with a teenager. And like this book is maybe trying to make the case that, you know what, actually women who are doing all the caregiving while working full time have a right to at least talk about the fact that this is a hard time of life. This perimenopause is no joke trying to raise a family in a middle class way on the salaries with the cost of living is no joke. And we should be able to say that without being accused of whining or, you know, if if we're whining, then what was all that, you know, 50 years of literature and filmmaking about men in midlife? I love that. I would imagine that there's also kind of a stigma that women are raised to have to look out for others and feel like, oh, I shouldn't complain or I shouldn't talk about my problems, basically. I think we've learned to suppress that. Oh, every woman. Yeah. Every woman I interviewed. Yeah. They all started our conversations by saying, you know, I'm very lucky. I have no right to complain. And that was something I heard myself saying often. And you know, once I had done maybe a hundred or so interviews, I started to think, you know, are we super lucky? I mean, yes, we are in that we're living in a country that was relatively safe and secure and not currently at war. But if you're trying to do that much with so little support, like 
do you have to also preface it by saying that I have no right to complain? I, I don't I don't know. But maybe it's also kind of a positive thing that even women who are struggling or going through midlife crises can see the positive aspects of their life. They can say, I have these things really good, but I'm also feeling these things. Yeah, there's been a lot of emphasis on gratitude. And I think that is important. I think being able to see what you do have and your privilege and all that is very important. But I think there's Another piece of it, too, which is to recognize injustices and unfairnesses and to be mad about it. And, and I think that a lot of the women I interviewed, whether or not they admitted it to themselves or others, had a lot of anger and a lot of frustration and resentment. And the book is, I think, an opportunity to maybe see that in other women and be less ashamed of it. I think that's a really important thing, that the book is not just about dissatisfaction like, oh, poor me, but that there are actual struggles and things that we are grappling with that are really intense. Like there's economic problems and there's job instability and caregiving and childcare and right there. I mean, you really get into a lot of the issues that yeah. we're dealing with that are very tangible and they're not just poor me issues. I, I would say so. I mean, I found that a lot of the women that I talked to were not complaining and were just soldiering through, yet they were dealing with so many real hardships. A lot of them were taking care of aging parents and little kids at the same time while working, while trying to do basically all the housework. It's really hard. And, and I think you can say it's really hard and talk about it with other women and it it helps everybody and no one suffers from that. It's not taking away from anybody else to, to say, listen, like, I'm really tired and here's why. Well, you even brought up, and I thought this really struck me in the book, where you talked about how some research indicates that women's happiness tends to bottom out around 40. And sorry to our 30-something listeners, but men around 50. And you suggested, <laughs> kind of offhandedly, but I thought it was a great point, that maybe that's why we don't hear so much about this from women, because by the time men start writing about it and complaining about it and writing movies about it, we're already past it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one possibility. And then I also think, and this was backed up by a lot of the therapists that I interviewed for the book, that women tend to fit their suffering or their frustrations in around the edges of all the things they have to do. Whereas men might blow up their lives and get the sports car and get the girlfriend and, and be very dramatic about it. A lot of times women can't really afford to go you know, on a full eat, pray, love journey, uh, <laughs> Odyssey of the Mind, because they have to pick somebody up from school. They have to take their grandmother food. They have all these obligations. And so I heard so many stories of women just like sneaking moments for themselves to feel feelings like, you know, crying in the car before they got out to go to the grocery store. Or one talked about going to the movies alone when she got a babysitter for her toddler daughter, like in the middle of the day when no one else was there so she could cry. And I, I think that that says something like this is sort of noble. I think that, that women are doing so much and, and working so hard and sort of just finding ways to feel things. I think that's actually kind of very positive that we're not completely subjugating our feelings. And, you know, this overlaps a lot with an episode we did a few weeks back. We talked to Judith Warner about her book, and then they stopped talking to me, Making Sense of Middle School, which really is less about understanding middle schoolers, but about what's going on in our lives generally in middle age when we have middle schoolers and how there's an overlap. The, the reason middle school can be triggering to us, I don't know if you've read the book yet. It's amazing. I think you'd really like it. I haven't yet. Oh, yeah, it's it. really, well, Judith, 
Judith Warner is amazing, but this book is fantastic. And I, I think it's really interesting when she talked about how what's going on in our kids' lives mirrors ours in a way. That they're trying to figure out who they are and what they're supposed to be next, and they're in between phases of life. And we're going through the same thing at the same time, generally, because in this country, we tend to be in our 40s by the time our kids are in middle school. Mm-hmm. So what are you finding in terms of how Gen X women with children differ in their struggles from those without besides you know the obvious of I have to pick up the kids or I have more on my plate yeah well I mean first of all that is very interesting this idea of the middle age and the middle school because of course middle schoolers are going through puberty and women in their 40s are going through perimenopause and I and I talk a lot in the book about perimenopause I want to get a shirt that says ask me about my quarantine hot flashes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think a lot of women would buy that. But as far as women with versus without children, I think we've been pitted against one another for so long. I yeah. think this the whole evil conspiracy theory that there are these like so-called mommy wars of um, where women are like, are, what, what are you going to choose? You're like, children are your job. And the, the fact is most women don't have a choice because you have to do all the things if you do have a family. And I would say that a lot of the women I talked to had made the choice not to have families because they didn't want that push-pull. They didn't want to have to do everything all at once. And and some of them felt like they were betraying this idea that they grew up with, that you're supposed to do everything and do it all effortlessly. And then some women I talked to felt like they had waited to have families and then found it was too late, like they they had wanted them. Um, And this one therapist I interviewed actually said this term that I think about all the time in a lot of contexts called ambiguous loss, that if Hmm. you you know, and I I think about this in terms of COVID too, it's like, if you know how it's going to go, if you know the ending, um, you can kind of reconcile yourself to it. And, And even in the case of somebody who dies, you can mourn and move on and feel sad, but it doesn't have that sense of uncertainty. And I think we're living now in this sense of uncertainty. And a lot of the women I interviewed who had wanted families and didn't have them also had this sense of uncertainty. They thought, you know, maybe I'll meet somebody tomorrow at the grocery store. Maybe I never will. And not knowing is so hard. And this one therapist said, yes, it's called ambiguous loss. And it's harder in a way than actual Wow, that's fascinating. And I think it's probably amplified by a zillion with the pandemic and the quarantine and what's going on. Like people who are trying to figure out dating lives or raising children. I mean, everything is just amplified with so much more uncertainty. Yeah. And I have so many friends who are in their you know, late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, who sort of felt like they were on a timeline, like a had a ticking clock already, you know, like I really want to meet somebody. I really want to have a family. And that now, of course, it's like there's the time is still going on. They're still getting older, but it's months and months out of that realm of opportunity. They, you know, they're not dating or it's very hard to do it. And I think that's very frustrating. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one thing I did find encouraging, and let's talk about some of the more positive sides of this. Um, yeah. I, I thought actually... What was encouraging is you talked a little bit about the research around the U-curve, the dip in happiness around middle age, and that that's perceived to be a global phenomenon. That is not unique to the United States. And I thought that was actually kind of encouraging that this is something maybe that humans share. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think especially for women who have gone through menopause, friends of mine who are in their 50s and 60s tell me that there is something that really changes after that point when you're not dealing with those hormonal fluctuations in the same way. And when your life is maybe a little more stable and you kind of know a little more the answers to a lot of questions you have in your 30s and 40s, there is a a piece that comes with that. And I am I really hope that is true. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I think so too. To finding out. 
And when we started the podcast, when I was pushing 50, we did an episode where we talked about passing the hot baton, (laughs) where like you come to this Uh phase in your life where you're like, I'm not going to be the hot one in the room. I'm not going to be the one with the best body. I'm not going to be the one that all the guys look at. And it's not that we were all that way to begin with. But once you accept that that's not even an option, you really feel better about yourself. (laughs) Like it takes that whole aspect away. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a liberation in it. And, and you know, this idea of becoming invisible that I think a lot of women in their 40s and 50s start talking about where people just look right through you in some rooms and how that feels. Yeah. Um, I think maybe there's some power in it. I, I think that maybe being underestimated can work to our advantage. I love that. Well, maybe The Joy of Invisibility will be your next book. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. But so I like that you're pointing out that it's not that we're all miserable. That's not what the book is about. Right. So... Just tell me a little bit about what's going right for us. Yeah, I mean, I think given how we grew up, we have this almost freakish resilience. It's something that in almost every woman I interviewed, I saw so clearly this kind of dark humor and ability to just roll with anything. Um, And I've seen that even in the last couple of months with, with women that I've been talking to who say like almost, of course, like, of course, there's one more tragedy, one more horrible thing to deal with. Hmm. And they're able to deal with it in a way that um, that I find really admirable. And the other thing I like that was positive in your book was you talked a bit about women forming female friendships. I think your husband said something like he felt that you needed more women in your life at 40 and you manifested them. <laughs> Is that something that you see in terms of female friendships with Gen X women as they hit middle age? I mean, that really is what I think cured my midlife crisis was interviewing all these women for the book and then realizing I needed more of that in my personal life too. And I started this women's nonfiction group with two of my writer friends and we started having these monthly bar nights and it was so life-giving and so fun and so helpful on so many levels. Like if you needed a fact checker, you could ask this group of women and they would give you a million recommendations. Or if you just had a bad experience with, you know, a freelance assignment, you could you talk about it with people who knew what you were talking about. That is one thing that I've been so happy to hear the book is being used for that people are using it as like a a book club that then becomes like a midlife crisis club. (laughs) So they're able to like have these really intense conversations. Yeah, it's about the book, but actually it's about their own lives. I think that's some good advice out there. Like find your people. Yeah. <laughs> that's always a, a great way to get through the tough issues in life. I think so. And, and I, one thing I found was having just like a regular night once a month. And again, who knows when we're going to be able to meet in person, but I guess in the <laughs> meantime, doing it on the internet is a, you know, a close, close second, but just making a space and making a time to just do that, just talk about stuff. I think that's great. I think we need to talk about stuff more. And that's why I'm so glad you wrote this book. It's called Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis by Ada Calhoun. It's phenomenal. You can find it on Amazon, IndieBound, libraries. I know you're a big supporter of libraries. All kinds of ways to get your hands on it. And where can we find you if people want to learn more about you and your work? Uh, I have a website that's just adacalhoun.com. That's great. And you're, I think, at Ada Calhoun on the Twitters and Instagram. Yes, I'm on all the things. All the things. Good. Same as the rest of us. Well, awesome. Listen, you're going to stick around for cool picks of the week, right? Yeah, totally. Terrific. Okay, we'll be back with that right after this. 
I am so excited to welcome back our sponsor, Briar's Ice Cream, right in time for the lovely humidity that's rolled into New York. Yay, June. <laughs> you probably know Briar's is America's number one ice cream brand. You know, those giant tubs you keep in the freezer, or if you're like Kristen, that you kind of hide from the kids in sneaky ways so they can't find them. But now they have a new line of treats that are so perfect for this time of year, especially if you're eating a little healthier these days like I am. Briar's Carb Smart. It's a line of sweet frozen treats with just three to five grams of net carbs per serving, all under 150 calories. They even count as a good source of fiber. And as I've said before on Spawned, they are good for real. I can show you the empty boxes in our recycling right now because my kids have eaten them all. And like my daughter says, she thinks they're the best fudgesicles she's ever had. And that is saying something because my kids are kind of like, you know, the frozen treat on a stick connoisseurs. Breyer's Carb Smart doesn't just come on sticks, which I kind of like this time of year. There's caramel swirl, chocolate-covered almond, vanilla, peanut butter, but you can also get them in tubs. So if you want to do DIY Sunday night to make the night fun for the kids, that's a great way to do it. Also, I really like that they've partnered with American farmers, so all their Carb Smart treats are made with 100% grade A milk and cream, which is something really important to us. Go Farmers! And here's a special offer just for Spawn listeners. You will not find this anywhere else. Visit briars.com slash spawned and you can download a nice big coupon so you can try them out for yourself. Briars Carb Smart are available at all major retailers from Target to Kroger to Amazon Pantry. Basically, wherever you shop, you'll probably find it. I've even found them in my own CVS. That's briars.com slash spawned for a downloadable coupon so you can give Briars Carb Smart treats a try today. And now it's time for Cool Picks of the Week! Cool Picks of the Week! Ada, as our guest, you get to go first. What's your cool pick? Uh, my cool pick is an app called Seek, um, S-E-E-K, by iNaturalist. And basically you can use it and point your phone at any plant or tree or insect or snake or anything, and then it will tell you what it is. And I use this all day, every day Shut now that I'm taking up. a lot of long walk. I love this. How have I not heard of this? That's amazing. It's great. And like now it I really know it works. Yeah, it really works. Like every once in a while, it'll be stumped, but I would say nine times out of 10, it will tell me what it is. And, and it gives you little bits of information about it and when it grows and how common it is in your region and whether it's native or not. It's fantastic. That's and what a great tool for parents with kids who are trying to find interesting things to do as they take their socially distant walks around the neighborhood these days. Yes, exactly. And it gives you little badges sometimes. I just got a reptile badge because I saw a garter snake this morning and you you can try to like get 20 new species by lunch. It's fun. Oh, that's fabulous. I love it. Well, I'm actually picking an app as well. Interestingly, I was going to say Audible because during this whole quarantine, I've discovered the joys of audiobooks for the first time that I just listen when I'm cleaning up or when I'm exercising or when I'm in the shower and I've really loved it. But in our post on Father's Day gifts that support indie bookstores that Carolyn wrote for us, she actually linked to an app called Libro.fm, which you probably mm -hmm. know about. It's basically like Audible, except all your purchases support your local bookstore. So you're buying audiobooks directly through your local bookstore and supporting them. And it's basically the same price as Amazon's Audible subscription. So I think that's really cool. Cool. And I may be switching over to them. Um, I also listen to audiobooks all the time. And I think Libra is great. And my book is on Audible. I read it. And then I also use a bunch of clips from interviews with the women that I did for the book. So there's like oh. a dozen of the actual voices. So yeah, so I love Audible too. And I think they're, they're both great. And I use them like 
yeah, while I'm cleaning or walking around or driving in the car, it's uh, it's fantastic. That's, and I think what I didn't realize is that it's not just like books on tape from the old days. Like they almost sound like podcasts when they're really good. Like you use actual quotes from women. I listened to a Malcolm Gladwell book that was, it was almost like acted out. It was amazing. And I, I listened to Mary Jacobs' book, Good Talk, which it, it was like listening to a play. It was phenomenal. So I guess we'll have to get yours on audiobook next. <laughs> well, Edith, the book is phenomenal. I really hope all of our listeners pick it up. It's just so worthwhile to feel like you're not alone in this world. And as you said in the back of the book, for the middle-aged women of America, you're not imagining it and it's not just you. Thank you, Liz. It's really been fun talking to you. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our guest, Ada Calhoun, and to our engineer, John Bowen, who always makes us sound fantastic. And hey, there are a few things you can do to help spread the word and support Spawned. You can subscribe, first of all. If you're not already a subscriber, do it. Magic will happen in your life when you do. You can download and save our episodes. And if you're up for it, leave us a five-star review. We love knowing what you think of us, particularly if you like it, let's be honest. And the best thing you can do, tell a friend or family member about our podcast, which will help support us as well. And hey, if you're a listener, then you're part of our Spawn podcast community. To make it official, join us on Facebook. Just search for Spawn podcast community on Facebook and you will find us. We'd love to have you join us and chat about everything that we talked about here today. Middle-aged menopause, hot flashes, <laughs> Gen X references, John Cusack, you name it. We'd love to talk about it with you. Kristen should be back next week. In the meanwhile, for me and Kristen, thanks so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz and have a great day. Spawn.